All right, it's great to be with you today. Uh, if, I got, if I haven't gotten the chance to meet you yet, my name is Larry. And I'll be preaching today from Acts 8, 26 to 40. Uh, it's, at, it's Advent Sunday. For those who are unfamiliar, many church traditions that recognize uh, this is Advent Sunday. And from here on outwards to Christmas, uh, we are sort of stepping into the shoes of uh, the Old Testament in anticipation of the coming Messiah and the birth of Jesus. And simultaneously, we are also looking forward to Jesus' second coming today. And so Advent uh, is just a time of waiting and anticipation and this habit of just waiting, uh, not, not getting what you want immediately and trusting that God will work all, all things out. Um, that's, this is the season to do it and to develop that discipline. Um, so if you have uh, opportunities to do that, uh, definitely there are tons of resources online. Um, find whatever works for you. You know, many, and in our household, uh, we're going to do this uh, paper chain link sort of thing where we're going to have a star. And then every day we're going to add a paper link to the star. And then at the very bottom, we're going to have a little baby Jesus. So that's our, that's our little thing. Anyways, uh, today uh, we're talking about the story of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. And um, so for those of you who don't know, I, uh, I work for this organization called the One American Movement. And, and um, we do a lot of faith-related work. And uh, it's really cool because we talk about faith-related issues, but I'm often dialoguing with people from very different faith traditions. And so uh, in my work, I, do, I have a lot of opportunities to um, realize just how sometimes in the church culture, in the church world, I talk a certain way, and it doesn't necessarily translate over to when I talk to people who are not Christians. Um, and what I mean by that is uh, sometimes we have our own vocabulary, our own lingo, our own definitions, and, uh, and we use the same words sometimes. Well, sometimes we have our own words, but sometimes we, even when we use the same words, we define things differently. And so it's, it's been good for me to learn how to frame Christian content in a way that's understandable to non-Christians. So for example, you know, in uh, Christian spaces, the word pride is usually negative. You know, you don't want to have pride. Pride is arrogance and you want humility. But oftentimes in non-Christian spaces, pride is a good thing. It's a positive thing. You know, and that's why, you know, uh, LGBTQ uh, advocates, they recognize pride month and they view that as a, as a positive thing, right? Another confusing word, I think, sometimes is fellowship. In Christian circles, we talk about fellowship and what we mean by that is community or friendship things like that uh, but oftentimes in the non-christian world they think about some prestigious training program like a medical fellowship and so it, it's you know it's, it's very different and another word another term i think that uh, doesn't often carry over well which is today's topic is missions in the christian world missions is this task of sharing the gospel to those who are not Christians, and especially maybe in a cross-cultural context, maybe in an overseas context, something like that. So to the non-Christian, this is a bit confusing. Firstly, it's grammatically confusing. Why are you using the word missions in the singular when the, clearly there's an S at the end, okay? Uh, but secondly, I think there's, there's a theological confusion or philosophical confusion. Why are you doing that? Why would you... Uh, share what you believe with other people who already have their own beliefs. 
Um, and why would you spend all this money and all this time to go over there? And, uh, and is that elitist? And is that, um, and, and I think sometimes the reason why there's so much negative associations is, is throughout church history, there has been some connection between the work of missions, church missions, and colonization. And so I think a lot of times when people think about mission or when they think about missionaries, I'm talking about non-Christians, they're thinking about a lot of the negative effects of colonization. They're thinking about, for example, uh, the medieval crusades. And uh, in the medieval crusades, you had people from Europe waging religious wars against people in the Middle East. Or sometimes they may think of Native American boarding schools in which languages and cultures were erased. And so when people think about missions or missionaries, they have these negative associations. And uh, sometimes, even today, uh, you know, we, we're, most of the people in the church, we've, you know, we've long recognized that a lot of the ways we did missions in the past was wrong. And so we have a more culturally sensitive way of doing things now. But even today, people are still confused. P uh, critics, they often accuse modern Christian mission efforts of being sometimes economically or socially harmful to the people that we're trying to reach. So, for example, the narrative is often, you know, you have these churches, they're raising tens of thousands of dollars, sometimes hundreds of thousands of dollars to send people overseas. And, some, and what, what do you, these people do overseas? You have people who oftentimes they have no professional painting experience and they're painting buildings. They have no professional teaching experience and they're teaching kids. And then they just uh, give everyone some T-shirts and then they uh, take a bunch of photos that they can put on Instagram and then they go home. And then these critics, they, they would say, wouldn't this money have been better spent if we just paid local people? We, we, could have, we could have created hundreds of jobs potentially by hiring local painters and local teachers and local t-shirt makers and things like that. Why are we spending all this money doing this, this, this big snafu and sending these mission trips overseas? So these are some criticisms that sometimes people on the outside of the church may have. So what is the response of the Christian? What should we, how should we think about these things? How should we participate in missions if we should? You know, well, uh, I think there's a variety of stances maybe in, even in this room, but personally, I don't feel the urge to wage a culture war over how to define a word, you know? So especially because this word missions uh, and missionary, at least in English, doesn't appear in the Bible. Um, so it doesn't matter to me if we call it missions or we call it something else. You can think of another word, maybe that's more culturally uh, adaptive or sensitive or something like that. I think that's fine. And I do think, secondly, it might be wise for the modern American church to rethink how we do missions, to sort of take some of these criticisms seriously, to think how can we engage a mission in a way that is not only spiritually beneficial, but maybe economically beneficial as well. I do think there is some value in thinking about those things because being a good witness, uh, I think, of the gospel means that we should positively transform cultures. I think that's true. But with that said, I do think there are some biblical principles that Christians need to be clear about. I do think there are some things that we need to be unapologetic about as Christians. And here are a few things. Okay, number one, God wants for all people to hear the gospel. God wants for all people to hear the gospel. I think this is clear throughout the scriptures that God does not just want to rescue people from economic poverty, but also spiritual poverty. 
God wants for people to hear the good news. And so he doesn't just want us to do good things, but he wants for us to share good news. So I think that's clear in the scriptures. Here's something else that's pretty clear in the scriptures. God's primary method to communicate the gospel is through Christians verbally sharing the gospel. You know, there are some exceptions to this rule. Sometimes God may show up in a dream or a vision to someone and communicates the gospel that way. But the the primary way, you see this throughout scripture, for example, uh, you see this with Moses. God sent Moses to go to Israel. God called Isaiah to preach to Israel. And so and, and in the New Testament, God sends people like Philip, which we'll talk about today, and people like Paul. God sends people to share the gospel. Okay, so that's also pretty clear in the scriptures. And number three, God sometimes calls people to share the gospel across cultural lines. Um, God sometimes calls people to share the gospel across cultural lines. And uh, sometimes, you know, one of the criticisms of the church today is that they're being insensitive to culture when they share the gospel across cultural lines. Like, why would you think that your culture is better than their culture? Why would you think that your religion is better than their religion? That you have a, a better hold on truth than they, they and But we see clearly in the scriptures that God sends people to share the gospel across cultural lines. In fact, I would say that this is one of the main uh, themes of the book of Acts, is that God is constantly calling his people to cross cultural lines to share the gospel with people who don't have the gospel. Um, in Acts 1.8, this is what it reads. This is Jesus right before he's about to ascend to heaven. He says this to his, his followers. This is sort of his last peace out statement. Okay, He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So Jesus tells his followers to be his witnesses. And he's very explicit about this. Don't just be witnesses to the people you already know, to the people you live with, but be witnesses to all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. In other words, expand beyond the people you know, the, the cliques you're in and the crowds you hang out with, to people you may not know, the people who are different from you, culturally different from you, and to the ends of the earth. And also notice this, right after Jesus says this, he leaves. You might think, what would be the most efficient way for God to share the gospel with everybody? It would be for Jesus not to leave, for, be, for Jesus to just appear to people all around the world in bodily form and say, hey, you know, I died and I rose from the dead. Do you want to believe in me? And that, you would think people would be more willing to believe in that than some random person from another culture who dresses differently, talks differently, sharing the gospel with them. But that was God's appointed way of sharing the gospel. Because why? Because God's primary method to communicate the gospel is through Christians, ordinary people like you and me, verbally sharing the gospel. So the Bible is clear, you know, regardless of whether you want to use the word missions or the word missionary, the calling on the Christian is clear. We must share the gospel and we must sometimes cross cultural lines to do it. So the question then for the Christian is not whether we share the gospel. The question is how we share the gospel. How do we share the gospel? Because I do think it's important that when we do share the gospel, we recognize the gospel is offensive. So sometimes it will offend people. But we want to do everything we can to make sure that we are not being offensive as we share the gospel, right? So how do we share the gospel? You know, the fact is that many Christians, they have shared the gospel throughout history in poor ways. And as a result, 
outsiders are often cynical of evangelism and insiders, Christians like us, we're often afraid of evangelism because there's so much negative baggage that comes with evangelism and missions. So what should we do? Um, you know, sometimes this is what some Christians do. Some Christians, they look at all the different ways people share the gospel poorly. And then they go, wow, that method seems offensive or that method seems awkward or that method seems uh, insensitive. Look at all these people that are sharing the gospel in all these horrible ways or giving the rest of us a bad reputation. And then they end there. They don't ever share the gospel themselves. What they just do is they just comment on how other Christians share the gospel in poor ways. And they're so busy pointing fingers at everyone who's doing evangelism in poor ways. And meanwhile, they're not doing evangelism at all. You know, uh, Dwight L. Moody, he once was told that his method of evangelism needed improvement. And this is what he responded with. He said, it is clear you don't like my way of doing evangelism. You raised some good points. Frankly, I sometimes do not like my way of doing evangelism, but I like my way of doing it better than your way of not doing it. And I do think that's something that ultimately we all have to wrestle with because, you know, it's kind of like having a baby when you have a, uh, when you're becoming parents, I mean, when you become parents, there's only so much you can do to prepare. And at some point you just gotta, you just become parents and then you just sort of figure it out along the way. And, uh, and if you have this mentality of like, oh, I'm never ready to be a parent. No, I don't have this covered. I don't have this covered. I haven't read this book, that book. Just, you're never going to do it. And I think evangelism is kind of similar. Like you can point fingers at people who are doing evangelism poorly and you can sort of develop skills and resources and learn how to do things. But at some point you just got to do it. And, uh, and you'll mess up along the way. You'll do something. You'll put your foot in your mouth sometimes along the way. But like Dwight L. Moody says, what's more important the method of our evangelism or whether or not we are actually doing evangelism at all. So anyways, with all that said, I still think it's important to talk about our, our, our method of evangelism. So how can we share the gospel in a way that can be effective? And so um, that's sort of an extended intro. We're going to dive into the passage now. Uh, but what I want to focus today is on the story of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. I think there are several lessons on evangelism that we can learn from what Philip does with this Ethiopian eunuch. Okay, so we're just going to highlight a few things that he does and everything. It's not, it's not a blueprint. Okay. You can't do these things exactly because every context is different. Every circumstance is different, but I think there are a few things we can learn about evangelism. So let's dive in. Acts 8, starting from verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, go south to the road, the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out and on his way, he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of the Kandake, which means queen of the Ethiopians. Okay, so right before this, in the prior story, what was going on was Peter and John and Philip, they were preaching in Samaria, and there was basically a revival going on in these Samaritan villages. So God tells Philip to leave that area, that region, and go instead to the desert. You might think that's kind of odd. Why would you go to the desert? And uh, also, he meets this Ethiopian eunuch, which is also a little bit odd. Typically, um, Jews don't interact with Ethiopians. And by the way, this word Ethiopian doesn't necessarily mean this person is from Ethiopia. Uh, back in those days, they were a little bit racist. And so the Greek word Ethiopian literally means burnt face. And so what it typically meant was someone with dark skin. Okay, so, uh, so that's, how they, that's how they framed things back then. And so we don't know exactly where this person is from. Uh, this Kandake reference may be a, a hint because Kandake 
some versions use the word Candace, but that's kind of confusing because Candace is a proper name. But Kendake, uh, this was a title that often the queen of the kingdom of Kush would, would, would hold this title. It's kind of like the term Pharaoh or Caesar. It's not, a, it's not a name of a person that you're born with. It's a title you inherit. And so there's a pretty good chance this person is from the kingdom of Kush, which is in modern day Sudan. And, uh, and this person was a eunuch, which is also interesting. So back then, uh, it was common for servants or slaves to be castrated before puberty uh, so that they could enter into some prestigious service for some highly respected individual, some noble or royal figure. And so this Ethiopian eunuch was all of these things. And, and so this person is, is a sort of a minority in a lot of ways. Okay? Being an Ethiopian uh, would be a minority. Okay? Being a eunuch would be a minority. And this person typically is not someone that you would run into. And so it's very happenstance that Philip went into the desert where there's not very many people in the desert and he would happen to run into someone who is very different from him. And so he's crossing all sorts of cultural lines in meeting this person, right? So let's keep going. Uh, verse 27, let's keep going. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship and on his way home was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah, the prophet. The spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. All right, so just imagine this. So Philip, and we talked about this a few weeks ago, Philip is a Greek-speaking Jew. He's having a great ministry in Samaria, and God leads him away from that ministry and said, goes to the desert where there's nobody around, and he comes into contact with this person who is very, very different from him. This person is uh, dark-skinned. This person is a eunuch. This person is from a, the, probably the kingdom of Cush, which is outside the Roman Empire. And this person's in a chariot, so it's pretty wealthy. And so he is told to approach this chariot. So what's the lesson here? Okay, one, one lesson we can take away is we should sometimes, in our call to do evangelism, in our call to do missions, go outside of our comfort zone. Sometimes God calls us to go outside of our comfort zone. Sometimes God calls us to people and places we least expect. And uh, just put yourself in Philip's shoes for a second, okay? Do you think that Philip felt totally natural, uh, totally socially at ease approaching this person? Probably not. This person, he probably never interacted with someone like this before, okay? And so it was probably a little bit awkward. It was a little bit unnatural. But I think that's what sometimes evangelism requires of us is to put ourselves in situations that, does, that, that feels unnatural, that doesn't feel convenient or easy, that might feel weird. Sometimes God calls us to do things like that. You know, um, during my, my junior year of college, uh, I was uh, living in this big house. It was, I think, 13 of us, 10 non-Christians and three Christians. And I just felt this huge burden on my heart that I just needed to share the gospel with my friends. And I was just waiting for the right opportunity. And I was waiting months for the right opportunity. You know, sometimes, you know, you just... I want to share the gospel and I don't know when. And uh, um, I remember one time, like my, one of my roommates, he, he took out the trash and he's like, you know, every time I take the trash out, I feel like I'm cleansing myself. And I was thinking, oh, this seems like a great transition to the share the gospel. How can I, what can I say? And then I, 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 by, I didn't say anything. I just, he just left the room. So I, I kept looking for these opportunities. And then um, one day I just, just felt such strong conviction. I said, you know what? I'm just, 
I just want to do it. And so I called the house meeting. I emailed them all, I called the house meeting. And, and then we all, we scheduled a date, we met and I stood up and for five minutes, I just laid out the gospel. And it was the most weird and awkward thing I'd ever done. And everybody thought I was such a weirdo afterwards. And they just moved on to talking about chores after that. And uh, that, but that's what happened. And, and, and that's so, I don't know to this, to this day if that was the right thing to do, but I just felt like I just had this burden. I just needed to share the gospel. And I knew that I, did, I couldn't let awkwardness get in the way of me sharing the gospel. And so but God might not be calling you to do something like that. You know, it might be something very different. But I don't assume that just because something is strange, something is awkward, that you can't do it. Maybe God is calling you to push through that in order to share the gospel. Okay, let's keep going. Verse 30, then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you're reading? Philip asked. How can I, he said, unless someone explained it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Okay, so here's another lesson. Initiate conversation. This sounds kind of basic, right? But I think at some point in time, it's not enough just to be friends with someone, but we need to initiate a conversation. You know, for some of us, the biggest hurdle to evangelism is we don't know how to initiate a conversation. We don't know how to go past the smile, okay? And sometimes we sort of justify it by saying, you know, my evangelism strategy is just to do nice things for people and then hope that maybe some, somebody along the way will ask me a question and then, then I'll respond. And then that's my evangelism. That, that's how I'll do evangelism. Well, let me tell you, that almost never works, okay? I used to do that all the time. You know, this is verse in 1 Peter, 1 Peter 3.15 that says, always be prepared to give an answer uh, to everyone who asks you to give the, the reason for the hope that you have. And I used to think about this verse all the time. I used to think, you know what? If someone ever asks me a question for the hope that I have, I need to be ready. I need to have an answer. So what would my answer be? What would be my response to these questions? Okay. And so I'd be prepared and I just wait around for someone to ask a question and no one would ever ask me a question for years. People would never ask me questions. I would just look, live my life and they lived their life and they would, never, they would never ask me about my faith. And why is that? Because the average person doesn't think about faith or especially not your faith. You might, if they have their own faith, you might think about their own faith. But the average person doesn't think about your faith. They're not, they're not naturally, most of, the, most of the time, they're not naturally gonna think, you know what, I'm gonna ask a question about this person's faith. That's not gonna happen. And so we cannot put the responsibility of initiating spiritual conversations on non-Christians who don't have the spirit residing in them. That is our responsibility for we are the ones with the command to go make disciples. We are the ones to share the gospel with the command to go to share the gospel. We are the ones who have the spirit residing in us. We can't rely on someone else to initiate this conversation. That has to be us. Here's another, another lesson to learn, okay, based on the same verse. Ask questions. Ask questions. Notice what Philip does. Okay, he approaches the chariot. He doesn't share the gospel right off the bat. What does he do? He asks, what are you reading? And I think there's a lot we can learn from that because, you know, a lot of modern evangelism strategies, um, what they mainly focus on is, or what, maybe one way you can think about them is, this is the memorize these bullet points strategy, okay? So memorize these bullet point strategy. What this means is you have four bullet points or 10 bullet points or whatever, but you just sort of, you memorize these things and then doing evangelism is to regurgitate these bullet points to someone else, okay? That's not bad 
Okay, I, there have been many people who've been saved through this method. And uh, sometimes it's exactly what people need. And so I'm not harping on that. Sometimes that works. However, that is not the only way to do evangelism. And we often see in the scriptures, Philip asks a question, and we see this in Jesus, with Jesus too. Jesus often starts conversations with questions. And why do you start conversations with questions? Well, I think there's a few reasons. One, uh, the more questions you ask, the more you're able to understand that person, and the more you're able to contextualize the gospel message to their individual circumstance. But two, I think asking questions often disarms people. When you start off, you know, saying a bunch of things, it can come across as abrasive, people become defensive. And when you ask questions, people become introspective, people become, uh, they, they start to want to share about their own lives and, th and then it, it does become a monologue, it becomes a dialogue, right? So I think that's a, that's a great way to start conversations, to start asking questions. And you might think, what sort of questions would I ask? Well, there's all sorts of questions you can ask, okay? Here's just a sample that I've used often I call these pre-evangelism questions, pre-evangelism meaning I ask these questions long before we even start talking about spiritual things or, or, or the gospel. But these are questions just to get to know people and just to get to understand people, get people to open up and potentially it leads to deeper conversations. All right. So what are you hoping to get out of life? Where do you see yourself in 10 years? How would you know if you're fulfilling your, your purpose in life? Do you think our society is trending in a positive or negative direction and why? If God was real, what do you think he would be like? So these are just sample questions. There's all sorts of questions you can ask, but I think the, the important thing is a, a lot of times there's so much um, baggage with idea of evangelism and, and, and people think of evangelism as like a salesperson, just making a pitch or something like that, but it doesn't have to be that way. Evangelism can just be a conversation. And in normal conversations, you ask questions. And, and that's what evangelism can consist of as well. Um, I think some of the best questions are the ones that naturally arise from the situation that you're in. So Philip, he didn't ask any of these questions. He was just asking a question that, that fit his circumstance. He noticed someone reading something. And so he asked, what are you reading? Okay. And, um, and so I think that works as well. Whatever you, your circumstances, maybe you're talking about the World Cup you're talking about politics, you're talking about uh, parenting, whatever is going on, you can just ask questions related to that. And if you're being a genuine person, and that person is being a genuine person, there's plenty of opportunities to move into spiritual topics. So let's keep going. The, the Ethiopian, he uh, reads this messianic prophecy from Isaiah. Um, probably this Ethiopian eunuch, he might be a Jewish convert, okay, something like that but we don't know for sure. Anyways, this happens in verse 34. The eunuch asked Philip, tell me please, who is the prophet talking about himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. So here's the next principle. Okay, at some point we need to transition to the gospel. Okay, obviously this is a lot harder uh, than you know just this sentence, but I think it's, this is important to be clear about. The ultimate goal of these spiritual conversations is not just philosophical musings, but it's the sharing of the gospel. It's not enough just to talk around the gospel. Sometimes when people do evangelism, all they do is talk around the gospel, but we need to talk about the gospel. Um, at some point, we need to say, hey, do you mind if I share what I believe? And if they say yes, we share what we believe. At some point, we need to get there. 
what people need to know at the end of the day is not, you know, uh, how many denominations there are or, you know, uh, what kind of church we attend or what sort of outreach events our church have or what time our community group is. At the end of the day, what they need to know is the gospel. You know, one of my favorite restaurants to eat uh, burgers is Shake Shack. Does anyone here like Shake Shack? Okay, maybe not. I like Shake Shack, okay. So let's say I buy a Shake Shack burger and, um, and let's say I give this Shake Shack burger to someone else to eat, but I don't, I don't tell them it's from Shake Shack. I, I just say, hey, here's this burger, try this burger. And let's say they eat this burger and they like it too. And they go, oh, wow, this is an amazing burger. If I never tell them it's from Shake Shack, what will they think? Will they think that Shake Shack is amazing? No, they'll think, wow, this is a great burger. You must be an amazing chef. That's what they would think because I never told them where it's from. And that same dynamic is true when you have a Christian who does a bunch of nice things and talks about a bunch of nice things, but never shares the gospel. They'll never think, oh, you have a great God. You have a great savior. They'll just think you are a great person. That's all they'll ever think. When Christians do a bunch of nice things, but never share the gospel, all you do is you lead people on and you think that you're just a great person. When deep down inside, we know as Christians that the only reason why we have any chance of having good qualities is because we were bought and redeemed and we're saved by grace. So that message needs to come across that we are, we are good people, not just because you know, we like to do nice things, but because we have a good God who saved us. And some, in fact, sometimes it might even work the opposite way. Sometimes people would think, I can't become a Christian because I'm not as nice as this person. I'm not as good as this person. And only good people with good virtues are Christians. So at some point in time, the message needs to come across. Now, there's one caveat here I want to give to this um, transition to the gospel point, which is, uh, so in Acts 8, uh, this all happens very quickly. Okay, there's a quick exchange. Philip meets a stranger. Within a few sentences, he's talking about the gospel. Many times in our culture, that doesn't work out. Okay, every now and then you might, you might meet a person who's a total stranger and that person is just prime. That person is ready. God's been doing a work in that person's life. That person's probably already had multiple conversations, been thinking about this for a long time. And all that person needs is just a person to come into the life, share the gospel with them. And they'll be, they'll, that's exactly what I was looking for. Sometimes that does happen. But most of the time we don't live in that world because we live sort of in a post-Christian culture. Many people, they've heard bits and pieces of the gospel already. And most people, they have other religions, okay? And most people, uh, they have belief systems where the very foundations of our faith are so different that it's just hard. They have to go through so many hurdles to accept the gospel. And so most of the time, this transition from meeting someone to actually sharing the gospel, it doesn't happen in one conversation. It often happens in multiple conversations. Over the span of multiple conversations, sometimes it takes the span of years to get to that point. Sometimes it takes multiple people. One person may have a conversation about, you know, what's wrong with the world. Another person may have a conversation with, you know, uh, the historicity of Jesus. And another person may have a conversation about, you know, parenting strategies. And, enough, and then, so, you know what I'm saying? So there can be multiple conversations before someone feels ready to hear and believe the gospel, right? And so, um, and this is, you know, if you track what happens with Nicodemus, for example, a similar thing happens with him in the book of John. Nicodemus appears three times, and at each time, he's a little bit closer to the truth. And I think that happens with a lot of people in today's culture as well. Sometimes 
it's not right away that it happens. Sometimes it takes multiple stages, multiple conversations, and that's okay. You know, sometimes it's kind of like um, uh, football, people are into football. Someone who tries to share the gospel with every spiritual conversation, it's kind of like a quarterback trying to throw a Hail Mary on every play. And if you know anything about football, you don't throw Hail Marys every play, okay? Uh, sometimes you have running plays, sometimes you, you have a screen play, sometimes you have, you have a, you're just trying to go for the first down. And throwing a Hail Mary doesn't work. And I think it's the same thing. Sometimes with spiritual conversation, you need, you need to recognize where are you in this circumstance? Where is this person in this circumstance? And what is most effective at this point in time? All right. All right, let's keep going. Uh, the eunuch gets baptized. Then we see verse 39. When they come out, out of the water, the spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away and the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. Philip, however, appeared at Azotus and traveled about preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. So notice what happens to Philip. He finishes his task, his task, and then God whisks him away. We don't know how, but he ends up in another city, Azotus, and he traveled about preaching the gospel in other towns. And notice this, he didn't go, well, I finished my job for the day. The spirit called me to go to the desert. I did my job. Now I'm going to go back home. He actually keeps preaching the gospel. And it's not, it doesn't seem like the spirit says, hey, now you're in this city, go preach in this city. He just does it. Why? Because he sees evangelism as a lifestyle, not an event. He sees evangelism as a lifestyle, not as an event. You know, sometimes we think about spiritual activities as distinct events. And when we think about worship, we think about these 15 minutes in Sunday service when we sing songs. But that's one kind of worship. All of life is actually worship. It's a lifestyle. When we think about prayer, you know, if we think about, you know, when you go to a communion group at the end, you share a prayer requests, you pray for one another, that's prayer. But Paul says, actually, pray unceasingly, pray all the time. And so all of lifestyle is prayer. And I'll say the same thing is true of evangelism. Evangelism is not just one event. Our whole life can be evangelistic. Evangelism can be a lifestyle. And um, so Philip, he didn't just think of evangelism as a distinct event in the desert. He was continually aware of opportunities to do evangelism. And so he found himself in this city. He's like, you know what? I'm going to do evangelism in that city. And he goes to another city. You know what? I'm going to do evangelism in that city. And that is the way by which Acts 1.8 is being fulfilled. Remember Acts 1.8, that's the verse we talked about where Jesus said, be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. What's interesting about all of these cities is all of these cities are on the outskirts of Judea and Samaria. Um, throughout the book of Acts, it's really interesting. So Acts has 28 chapters. In the first seven chapters, almost everything happens in Jerusalem, in the city of Jerusalem. And then Acts 8, where we are right now, this is how it starts, Okay. It says, and Saul approved of their killing him. Him is Stephen. Stephen was just killed in Jerusalem. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout where? Judea and Samaria. And skip down to verse 4. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. So what so we have in the beginning of chapter 8, the first time this, the narrative shifts to Judea and Samaria. And so throughout the book of, uh, so throughout chapter 8, we see, you know, um, uh, Philip and Peter and John, they go to Samaria. You see the revival in Samaria. That's, that, that was Simon the magician. And then we have this new section. Uh, he's on the road to Gaza. And, um, and actually, here's a, here's a map. Okay. 
Uh, he goes through on the road to Gaza, and that's all. That's also in Judea. And then he goes to Azotus. He goes up these coastal cities to Caesarea. So all these places, basically, what they're doing is they're covering all of Judea and Samaria. And by the Caesarea, is also going to be the scene of um, uh, Acts ten and eleven, where Peter talks to Cornelius. And then chapter thirteen is really where where Paul's ministry takes off, and Paul discovers in chapter thirteen that he's being called to be a missionary to the Gentiles. And he takes the gospel to the ends of the earth. Well, at least he tries to. The book of Acts ends with him reaching Rome. And as we know, Rome is not the end of the earth. It's halfway through the Roman Empire, but there's plenty of places around the planet that was never touched in the book of Acts. And so was Acts 1-8 fulfilled in the book of Acts? I would say no. It wasn't fully fulfilled. When will Acts 1-8 be fulfilled? According to Jesus, Matthew 24, 14, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. That's when Acts 1-8 will be fulfilled. When the testimony of the gospel is preached to all nations, to the whole world, to the ends of the earth. You see, Acts was just the beginning, and the story of Acts continues on in the church today. In Acts, God desired for all people to hear the gospel. He wanted to use human beings as a primary method of sharing the gospel. He called people to cross cultural lines. And all of those principles are also true of the church today. Today, God also, he still wants for all people to hear the gospel. And he still uses ordinary people like you and me as a primary method of evangelism. And he still calls us sometimes to cross cultural lines to do it. Yes, sometimes it's difficult. Sometimes, it's, sometimes we make mistakes. Sometimes we don't know what we're doing. Sometimes people ask us questions and we don't know how to respond, but that's okay. You know, if I'm giving someone a Shake Shack burger and they ask, hey, is, was this a cow? Was this beef from a cow that was grass-fed? I don't know. You know, how many calories are on this burger? I don't know. There's questions I don't know how to respond. But what I do know is I like this burger. And I want to share this burger with you. And I think the gospel is very similar. Um, sometimes when we do evangelism, people may ask you questions and you don't know the answer. And that's okay. All we're called to be are witnesses. We're not called to be defendants in the court. We're just called to be witnesses. We just say, this is what we experience. And I love this Jesus who rescued me so much. And I want to share this person with you as well. We're just, be we're just beggars telling the world where we got our food. So let's be faithful to our calling. Let's ask that God would give us this passion for evangelism, that he would still in us this courage to go out of our comfort zones, to initiate conversations, to ask questions, to transition to the gospel, to do all this, not just as distinct events, so we can check off these boxes. I did this Christian task and this Christian task, but as a lifestyle, because we so want for Jesus to be known across the earth. We so want for our friends and family to know about who Jesus is. Let's follow him wherever he leads us, no matter the cost. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you so much for Jesus and just uh, this message of the gospel. That though we were once separated from you, though we were enemies of you, uh, you came down. You sent Jesus down to dwell with us, to live with us, to be with us in the flesh, to share the the message of the gospel with us and to die for us. And at the end of Jesus' life, he said to his disciples, as the father sent me, so I'm sending you. 
And God, we recognize that is a calling, that is a command for us as well. And so, God, we pray that this same heart that Jesus had would be our heart as well, that we would be willing to leave the places of comfort, to go to places that may be unfamiliar or dirty or strange, and we would live with people who are different from us, who may be natural enemies as well, and we would be willing to share the gospel. May we be like Isaiah and Isaiah 6 who said, here am I, send me. May we go to the places where people need the gospel, whether that's in our workplaces, whether that's our neighbors, whether that's our classmates, whether that's a totally different country, may we be faithful to the calling of the gospel. We thank you so much for this opportunity to participate in the mission of the church. We thank you so much that we get this chance to be your hands and feet in your mouth in sharing the gospel to a world that's so desperately in need of it, so desperately searching for it without even realizing it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.